I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. We uh, thank the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry, and uh, pray that he'll be with us, to, uh, be with us tonight. And uh, we welcome uh, those who are in our studio audience, and then those who watch uh, really all over the world. We have people all over the place uh, who are watching the show right now, and so we welcome you. Since we have moved off our full-time focus of Mormonism, some have wondered my thoughts about it as an institution of late. I think that there are, uh, at the people level, maybe put it that way, what is that noise? I think at the people level, there is a camaraderie, of course, and I think there's some genuine fellowship with the LDS people and, and sound activities. And in spite of their doctrine, I think there are some who are Christian. That's my opinion. I've always believed that and always said that. I don't, I don't, uh, it, so doctrinally, I stand opposed to uh, what they teach and why they teach it. But when it comes to those who are trying to scramble up the ladder of uh, leadership, I'm gonna appeal to words of C.S. Lewis as I have in the past to describe my view. C.S. Lewis was describing what he thought hell was like in his day and age, and he likens hell to a modern managerial age. And uh, that's how I see corporate Mormonism is what I call it. What's up on North Temple and the hierarchy, the power that D. Michael Quinn writes about, uh, the men in the suits who really toe the line for the church. Lewis says, my symbol for hell, which is therefore my symbol for LDS hierarchies of power, is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the offices of a thoroughly nasty business concern. Everyone wishes everyone else's discrediting, demotion and ruin. Everyone is an expert in the confidential report, the pretended alliance, the stab in the back, end quote from C.S. Lewis. So of course, in my associations with many religious institutions, even little local Christian fiefdoms, from the top down, things aren't necessarily that different. Um, you know, when you bring men and women and uh, power and control and money under a roof, you almost always come up with something ugly in the end. So that's how I see it. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, seek your presence. We thank you, uh, Lord, for uh, uh, taking on flesh and, and uh, giving us life, shedding your blood, living perfectly and uh, being a lamp to our feet now, we pray that your spirit will be with us and that we will um, abide by your will, what you want for us, not what men want or religion, not what I say, but what you want for us in our lives. We trust in you and you alone, Lord. Seek you through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our examination, it's been going on for a while, it's gonna continue to go on for a while, we have asked the question, what does the Bible say, or does the Bible say when Jesus would return? Some of you are like, man, this has been going on, but there's a lot of information. And we've covered the essentials to the question from the Gospels. In addition, we have pointed out that when uh, the Revelation, what it says about when he would return, and then we've talked about the term last days and last hour. 
You know, when it comes to the book of Revelation, um, my good brother in Christ, David, recently asked me a question. He said, Sean, who was Revelation written to? And uh, I replied, to the seven churches. And he said, where are those seven churches now? He said, in other words, if we go over to Thyatira, uh, or one of the seven churches, are they there? And I said, no. And he said, that's right, they're gone. And it was written to them, and you go over there, and they're gone. And so, and, and he like smiled and, and said, exactly, and the point was made. So Revelation was interesting when we talked about that. Tonight, before we get into the specific references from the apostles themselves, I want to talk about the notion, the biblical notion, or lack thereof, of what we, we refer to as the end of the world. Uh, it almost goes without saying that Christians and non-Christians alike in general believe that there is going to be an end of the world. And uh, have you ever wondered why Christians believe this? Oh, really? It's because it's in the Bible. Uh, not really. Maybe we ought to examine this claim that the Bible tells us this world is going to end before we swallow this one hook, line, and sinker too. Now, typically, generally speaking, Christians think that the end of the world is going to look something like this. The good guys, the believers, that is, will have been removed from the earth by a rapture, if you will. Then the world is going to be wiped clean by fire so intense that to some, it's even going to melt the heavens because there's references to this in Scripture. We're talking about one bad fire, and the imagery has been used by Christian preachers and pastors and prophets for centuries on end, decades, saying the end is coming. Next week, we're going to open up with a series to show you that from 100, uh, 120 AD on, what people have said about the end of the world. I mean, we have a quote from Tertullian who says, things are so bad now, the end of the world must be right around the corner. And that was like 200 AD. We've been saying it as cultures forever. So the world has not ended. Do you want to know the only reason why it hasn't ended? Carla, be quiet. It's because the Bible never, ever says that, that the world will end. The Bible does not say the world will end. Why are so many smart Christian scholars and apologists um, believing that it will end? Same reason that there's many LDS who have PhDs and medical doctors who follow Jim Jones. I don't know, but let me say this. Not only does the Bible not say that there will be an end to the world, the idea stands in contradiction to what the Bible says. The Bible says the opposite. Um, what does it actually say? Go all the way back to Genesis 8:21. God says, neither will I smite anymore every living thing as I have done. That's one quote. Now, of course, that can mean that God is saying, I'm not going to smite every living thing in the way I have smitten the people in this sense. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe not. In Psalm 78, 69, the Lord tells us that he has established the earth forever. That's what it says. Psalms 93, 1 adds that the earth cannot be moved. You can interpret that any way you want. Ecclesiastes 1, 4 says, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Where on earth do we get the idea that there's going to be an end of this world? Well, it comes from the old King James Version of the Bible. There I go again, mixing my uh, old English with piratry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, again, the phrase, the end of the world, is there because of the King James translators it occurs five special times in the King James Bible. The phrase, the end of this world, occurs once more. And the phrase, the ends of the world, occurs once too. So add all these phrases up and we get a total of seven times in the King James Bible where it says, the end of the world. 
okay? Now, we know that the word in the Greek for world is G, as in geology, earth, G-E, and we also know uh, that there is a word cosmos, and that is, uh, means both the physical earth and the heavens and the earth. Cosmos can mean both. In all seven instances where we read the phrase, end of the world, end of this world, end of, uh, the, uh, end of the world, the King James translators took the Greek aeon and translated into the word world. It doesn't, it's not G for earth, it's not cosmos for world, it's aeon and it means age. They took the Greek term and says, this will be the end of the age, and they made it end of the world. And because of that, we have believed that there is going to be an end to this. In other words, all the phrases in the King James that say end of the world ought to read end of the age. Now, is this important? It's so important that all seven of these verses have been changed now in the new King James they don't say end of the world now in the New King James. They don't say the end of the world in the NASB, in the ESV, or in the NIV. Those have all changed it to say the end of the age because end of the world is so misleading and it makes us think it's speaking of heaven and earth catching on fire and going away. Why did they get changed? Because they should have been changed. Because truth be told, neither Jesus nor any of his apostles ever said or intimated that there would be an end of this physical world. Now I know for you who have been raised with the thought, and I have been, that there's gonna be an end of the world. I know this is like, I can't even imagine there not being an end to this place. And I know that kind of rattles a cage that you might be standing on. But ask yourself this, why does God, who says he created the heavens and the earth and everything he said, and it was good, why would he take an earth that is self-sustaining that replenishes itself, the seas and the, and, and the earth keeps bringing forth, why is he gonna wipe this place out and destroy it completely and melt it in the heavens completely the way that uh, futurists have interpreted the Bible? Why have we believed that, that that's gonna happen? Why did the King James use the term world? Was it malicious on their part? It wasn't malicious in my opinion. It was because what was being described was an end of that world for them. And so they used that term in all good conscience to, to bring, it was the end of the Jewish age. It was the end of the Mosaic dispensation. And so the King James translators probably thought the end of this world is, is a fine translation. So it's understandable that they, are, that they use the term world. The problem is uh, they were not experiencing an end of the entire physical earth. It was an end of the world that the nation of Israel and all that orbited around it knew. It was the end of the law. It was the end of everything as promised. The whole mosaic system done. The best Bible scholars agree that Jews believed in two ages, okay? The first one contained the law and the prophets, and the second age that they believed in was the age of the Messiah. Those were the two ages uh, which was known to them as the age to come. Okay? There was the age they were in and the age to come. All the Jews and scholars will chest me on it, will say that's what they believed in. When you understand that, then when you read passages like Matthew 12, 32, where Jesus says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be given him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, and then he says, nor in the world to come, which isn't in most manuscripts. But when he says, neither in this world, it's not cosmos or G, it's aeon. Neither in this age, or in the age to come, is what he says. It has nothing to do with this world and the worlds to come where we go to. It's talking about an age. See, all things of the former age prohibited many Jews from realizing that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and so God was gonna wipe out everything from that former age. He was gonna end the things of that world. Even the writer of Hebrews said that for the Jews under the law, that the way into the holiest of all was not made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. What that says is that 
the writer of Hebrews says, the Jews weren't going to be able to see clearly Christ while the tabernacle, while the temple, while the uh, things of the old covenant stood. So God was going to knock them out so that the Jews would see. So in 70 AD, God destroyed all those impediments to their understanding of who the Messiah was and is. Additionally, just to put it out there, the Bible does not talk about an end of time either. That's not biblical. There are two phrases that futurists will use to suggest that there's going to be an end of time. One is found in Daniel. One is found in Revelation. Daniel, the line says, the end of the time of the end. That's what it says, the time of the end. And that has been interpolated by futurists to believe there's going to be an end of time. But the time of the end is very different than from the end of time. Okay, and the Revelation passage says, and there should not, and there should be time no longer. And futurists have said, see, there's not going to be time anymore. But that's a total uh, uh, terrible way to understand it because the Revelation passage isn't saying there's not going to be time anymore. It's saying that when it comes to the Jews' ability to accept the Messiah, there will be time no more. There's not going to be any time left for them to do it. That's the context of that passage. There was a time in their history when the writer in Revelation said, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And that's what that passage is referring to. There's time no more to change. It's done, okay? So the Bible doesn't speak to the end of the physical earth, nor does it speak to the end of time. So let's look at the seven verses in the King James that mention the end of the world. They're gonna be familiar to you. Read what they say, and you can see how easy it's going to be to believe this world's going to end. And then we'll read them in, con in context of the Greek. Five of them are found in Matthew. Here's the first three. Matthew 13, verses 39, 40, and 49. It's where Jesus is explaining a parable, and he says, The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. You read that in the King James, you think, okay, he's talking about the end of this world. And the reapers are the angels, and therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So shall it be the end of this world. Then in verse 49, he says, so shall it be the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. If you are reading the King James, it would be easy to believe that this was Jesus talking about this planet ending, Right? But Jesus is simply explaining to his disciples the end of the Jewish age. That's the end. Because as he said, and as I said in each instance, it's age, not cosmos, that's translated into world there. All the things that were going to happen to the Jews at the end of their age, he was describing. Notice in verse 39 where Jesus says that the harvest is the end of the age. You got that? Then, do you remember when he said to, in John 4, 35 to his disciples, lift up your eyes, look to the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest, okay? So he has talked to them and said, there's a harvest out there of Jewish brothers. Go out there and share with them. But then when he's giving this parable, he says, listen, the harvest is the end of the world. When it's over, when it's done, that it comes when the whole Jewish economy is wiped out. Contextually speaking, this was all Jesus speaking to them about that age and those people, not us. If this makes you feel left out, I've heard that, uh, feel lost as a Christian, uh, you're, you're self-centered in your faith. Uh, because, you know, we don't live for rapture. We don't live for the end of this world to catch on fire. We live for Christ. And the majority of people who have been Christians for 2,000 years have lived and died for Christ. And they've had their second coming. And like I've mentioned before, if I'm wrong and there is going to be a third coming and he comes, it's such a small sliver of the amount of people who have believed in Christ that are going to experience the second coming. And so, you know, it's kind of God set up everything arranged around the house of Israel. And that's what this is a record of. It's a record of them and what he said to them and what he promised them. We read it, we gain spiritual lessons from it. Absolutely, love it. But the, the literal physical message was to them, and that's lost. So um, 
we are now enjoying being part of the invisible kingdom that Jesus sits over. He's at the right hand sitting over the kingdom now, and we are part of it. The kingdom of God is within us. We are part of it here. We will be part of it there. The next two times end of the world is mentioned in scripture is also in Matthew 24.3, then Matthew 28.20. The Matthew 24.3 passage ought to be familiar to you by now if you've been watching. Because Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and they said, tell us, when shall these things be, Jesus, that you've been talking about? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, he says, they say. And of course, that should be, tell us, Jesus, when will be the end of the age? That's all it is. The last end of the world that is used in the King James Version of Matthew is in the last chapter of what we call the Great Commission. Here, Jesus says to them about their job as apostles, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And remember, sorry, Merle, come off this for a second. Remember, Jesus tells them this in Matthew 28. That passage is suspect because did anybody ever in the context of scripture ever go out and baptize anybody in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Never. They never did it, ever. They baptized how? In Jesus' name. And so we've talked about that, how that's what Jesus says to them according to what it says, but they went out and baptized only in Jesus' name were the apostles being uh, Uh, rebellious? Did they not obey the Lord? Or do we fail to understand what Jesus was saying there? Anyway, the next verse, in verse 20, he says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That's not what it means. It means even till the end of the age, aeon, not cosmos, not G. So again, mistranslated, and we read it, he's gonna be there till the end of this place is destroyed. No, till the end of their age. We would like as modern New Testament readers to believe that this means the end of the physical world doesn't. Jesus plainly says to the end of the age. He came to his own. He called his own right there in the Great Commission to go out to his own. He tells them that he would be with them till the end of that age, and he was. He was with them until the end of the age of Israel, 70 AD, when judgment fell. We are gonna talk about judgment next week and it falling. So that's the five of seven uh, times the Bible speaks of the end of the world. The sixth time is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Here Paul is speaking to believers at Corinth about the things written in the Old Testament that they were written as examples for them to benefit by. And this is what he says. Speaking of the events of the Old Testament, Paul says, now all these things happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Again, the Greek here is age, not worlds. And what Paul is saying is all these things happened to the nation of Israel. They were examples that were written for the admonition of believers upon whom, and this is speaking of the nation of Israel, not believers, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Okay? Did you notice the tense of the verb, uh, the tense of the verb that Paul uses here? He says, are come that these things that upon whom the ends of the age are come, not will come, not are going to come 2,000 years later, have come, essentially he's saying, upon whom the ends of the age have fallen, the nation of Israel. The last time the end of the world is used in Scripture is in Hebrews, where the writer says, speaking of Jesus, quote, for then he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself? I don't even need to explain that one. I mean, that's the writer of Hebrews saying that he, he must have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the age, he says. So this is the writer of Hebrews calling the time he was writing the end of the age. King James translated it world, so we think it's at a future time. But let me read a few other translations of Hebrews 9.26, which says it much more plainly in the King James. You ready? Uh, One version says, For Christ would have had to undergo death many times since the creation of the world, but now, once and for all, at the close of the age, instead of at the end of the world, he has appeared in order to abolish sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Weymouth's literal translation of Hebrews 9.26 says it this way. In that case, Christ would have needed to suffer many times from the creation of the world onwards. But as a matter of fact, he has appeared once for all at the close of the ages in order to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. We can clearly see that when we just look at the Greek, it was the end of, of this. It was the end of the age. It was all recorded. This is what happened. We have a record of it. And again, we read this and we gain spiritual knowledge from it. But the whole age was closed up. Um, quickly, let me hit a few more. First Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand, Peter says. But the end of all things is at hand. When did Peter write this? A long time ago. If it was at hand, as he says, that's what he meant. It's right now coming. All right? And there was, there's uh, other ones, uh, too. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.29, Paul writes, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. Paul, writing to Corinthians 2,000, about well, 1,900 years ago, he says the time is short. Do you know what the context was? Paul was telling the people at Corinth, who he wrote this to, don't marry. The time is short, brethren. Don't marry. That's, what, that's the context of why he said it. It is believed that Paul wrote this letter to believers at Corinth about 56, 57 AD, within three years of the beginning of the end, when the, Ro when the Roman uh, soldiers started to invade Jerusalem and destroy it. It is believed that's what it has. And so Paul just says, look it, the time is, is drawing near. The time is short. Um, nothing to do with our day and age. And yet pastor after pastor, church after church, have used and abused to scare the Heck out of believers, or as Tunnel Vision out there suggested last week, they use it to control them. They use it to scare people. They use it to fill the pews, to keep people on edge, believing it's coming, it's coming. How about another one? This one's gonna rock your world. This one, 2 Peter 3.10. Listen to what Peter says, and we'll wrap it up with this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, when futurists read that, they say, that has not happened. So obviously, we're still waiting. It's because they're not reading in the way Hebrews write and how Hebrews speak. And we uh, showed you before. And in fact, let me give you a passage that will remind you of Isaiah 51, 16. This is the Lord has already created the heavens and the earth when he says this, and then all the way in Isaiah 51, 16, the Lord says, but I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, the waves roared. The Lord of the host is his name. I have put my words in thy mouth and I have covered thee in the shadow of my hand, talking about the nation of Israel, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, thou art my people. We know he laid the heavens and the earth well before Isaiah wrote this, so what's he talking about? He's talking, figuratively speaking, that when he established Israel, he planted the earth, he planted the heavens. It was the figurative speak, and that is what Peter's talking about, that the earth of the age of those people was going to end. The age of the heavens for those people, the foundations, was going to end. We, uh, so we know that when Peter is describing the heavens passing away with a great noise and the elements of the earth melting and the works therein being burned, that Peter is speaking of that special heaven and earth God established for the nation of Israel only. And we know fire was used when Rome destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, additionally, earlier in chapter 3, though, of 2 Peter, the apostle brings up what happened in Noah's day and he speaks of the world perishing. Let me ask you something. Did the world perish in Noah's day? No. Noah actually got out in Mount Ararat, the mountains, and he had a, a, uh, he had a dove bringing back a leaf from an uh, olive tree that was fresh, plucked from an olive tree, suggesting that there was land. The world still existed. But Peter, in his Hebraism, described the world as being destroyed, as being wiped out, as ending. The world perished, he says. But it didn't perish. That's just the way they talked. What perished was that age of evil people prior to Noah, wiped out. That's the same thing that is being described in Scripture in the New Testament about the end of the age. It's the end of all that the Mosaic Covenant was based upon. Temples, gone. Priesthood, gone. Genealogy, gone. Okay? So, uh, 
when Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that therein shall be burned up. We know it is not the natural world uh, that was going to go, but the world of that age who refused the Messiah. Let me conclude tonight by looking at one parable, Matthew 22 of the Lord's. We know the parable Jesus tells. He's speaking of a king who has prepared a wedding party for his son. And he sends servants out to tell the people that they were all invited. And when, the, and when the servants go out, the people mock the servants, they reject the servants, they even kill some of the servants, if I remember right. And we can see that this is a parable Jesus is talking about, that the father has said, I have a wedding that I prepared for my son, marry the house of Israel, and they rejected it, okay? Now listen to what Jesus says, how the king who planned the party responds to them rejecting the marriage to attend the marriage. Verse, 20, uh, verse seven of Matthew 22, but when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That's the parable Jesus taught to the house of Israel about what was gonna happen to their age. Though he was gonna send the armies in, which was the, which the Roman armies, they were gonna destroy those murderers, he says, and burn up their city, which is exactly what happened. And that was the end of that age. And it fits perfectly with Malachi 4.1, which Malachi prophesied and said, for behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, say the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. I would strongly suggest to you when it says, when Malachi says, the day's coming, that the, the end is gonna be here, and there's not gonna be root or branch left. He was talking about their genealogy. There, we talk about genealogical trees, there's not gonna be any root, and there's not gonna be any branch. We're not gonna know where we came from once Jerusalem's destroyed. Why? Because all the genealogical records were in the temple, and they were burned by fire there, and so the Jews, they lost their complete nation. They were, they were, they were um, cast out and, 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 and set apart and destroyed as prophesied. This is the end Jesus was said would come and those in Judea would flee to the mountains in Matthew 24. This is the end that Peter was referring to when he said the end of all things is at hand. This is the end that Paul was talking about when he said, brethren, the time is short. It's what Revelation 21 was speaking of when it says the former things have passed away, okay? And it's the judgment Jesus was speaking of of Matthew 20, uh, 23, 33, when he asked the Pharisees, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the judgment of Gehenna? Are there military idiots out there with their fingers on the button? Sure. Do we have pollutants and things like that? Absolutely. Can we wipe ourselves out? Maybe, I don't know. But it doesn't mean the earth is going to end, the world is going to end, and everything's gonna melt, and it's gonna be the way the futurists have read it. So we share Jesus about the good news of having him in our life now. We prepare people for the day when they die, and when they will, they will be raptured and meet him in the air, they will be judged, just like Israel was at that time, some being destroyed, some going to life, some going to hell, some going to heaven, they'll be resurrected, and it's been happening since he took his uh, seat on the throne next to God. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. Stephanie from Bremerton, Washington. I left Jehovah's Witnesses over 20 years. I jumped to Mormonism three years ago. After researching and coming upon your shows and Tan Sandra Tanner, et cetera, I resigned last week. Why do I feel so lost? I've prayed to God to please help me have a born again experience like you. I am so desperate for it. Well, uh, Stephanie, first and foremost, you're doing the right thing. You're praying to the living God to give you a new heart, and now he's asking you to wait. And you know, don't, I think the reason I had what I had was because I needed something powerful, I'm so dense. It took my wife you know, a good solid seven years probably to really know that she was right. And, and, and it's, so for some people, there's perseverance required. For other people, the Lord knows, but he knows exactly when to reach you. And so what you're doing now is you're walking by faith. You're trusting that his promises are true, that what he said, that he will respond, that he will. 
And so, my sister, wait. In the meanwhile, start reading the word. Get in and read the word of God. Attend a church that teaches the Bible, not one that gives you a show, one that teaches the Bible, not one that makes you pay tithing, one that teaches the Bible. And you just go and hear the word because it's the washing of the word that clears out your mind and helps you start to see and think clearly. And God has promised us. That's why the, the word is so important. Next question offline. Do you know when LDS doctrine made the Holy Ghost a person or persons? Was the Holy Spirit personified by Orthodox Christianity after the Nicene Creed? I think it was the Holy Spirit was personified uh, by the Apostles' Creed and the creeds that came, the Gallatin Creed that came thereafter. I don't think, I don't think they used person in the Nicene Creed relative to the Holy Spirit, but I could be wrong. The LDS is a progressive doctrine on the Holy Spirit, and I couldn't tell you when Smith figured out how the Holy Spirit was gonna work in there, or if it was even Smith who did it. I, I can't remember, but we can check that out, Mike in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. But let me say this. Uh, I, I've been reading 1 Peter, I've been reading 1 John, I've read the Pauline epistles the past uh, few months, going through, I'm checking. Every single time, I mentioned this last week, we have the apostles thanking Father God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanking Father God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Never the person of the Holy Spirit. He never gets included in the thanking that goes on. And if he was a person, separate and distinct, as you are from me and another person, and was a personage of spirit, but one with the Father, I would think the Holy Spirit would get equal credit since the, the creeds say he's equal. I would strongly suggest to you, this is the strongest point against Trinitarianism, the Holy Spirit being a person. I would su suggest the Holy Spirit's God's spirit. And it comes and he sends it and there's complete communication without any lapse between them. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. To make him a person like the LDS have done and like Trinitarians have done, I would reject that. Jeff in Danbury, Connecticut on line one. Jeff, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, hi, Sean. Hi. This is Jeff. I'm just, I'm, I'm calling because I'm going through a hard time. And I, I, I love and respect you. And I'm sorry I'm like this right now. But uh, I've been drinking more than I should be lately and smoking. And I love the Lord. And I this summer I try to get close to my neighbors because they do that stuff. And I start doing it with them purposely to, to just share with them and not think they're different than me. And now I feel like I'm caught a little bit, and I just, I just feel really broken up right now, and I just want your advice on like drinking and smoking and that kind of thing. Well, uh, um, Jeff, I'm sorry to hear your plight. Our flesh will rise up and catch us. And uh, you know, if you're weak in those areas, I suggest you stay away from them. If you're not weak in those areas, no problem. Uh, we are, have liberty in Christ, but obviously there's a bit of an issue with you on those things. So. You want to stay away from them. But, you know, I want to pray with you, Jeff. Let me pray with you and, uh, and just uh, take it to God. Is that all right? Yes, please. All right, my brother. Lord, I come to you with my friend all the way across the country in Connecticut, my brother Jeff. Never met him, but, Lord, I just pray your spirit to fall upon him, to realize that in his flesh there is no good thing, that he's a man uh, in flesh, and it will always trip him up when it is given power. So Lord, I pray you'll help Jeff not to feed the flesh, but to feed the spirit. And not to use his ways and systems or strategies to reach people for you, but to rely on your spirit and just help him to put this behind him. If he has weakness right now in his body to turn back to alcohol and, and pot or whatever it is, pray that your spirit will override that and uh, that he will relax in you. And he will, he will not let Satan beat him up and make him feel that he's inferior, not a Christian, that he's uh, lost, he's lost his salvation or any of that garbage. But he will look to you in faith, trust in you and your spirit, and, and then stand up and walk. Tomorrow's a new day. Give him a good night's rest, open his eyes, heal his heart, and help him move forward, getting back in the word and letting go of this garbage that has set him back temporarily, Lord. We pray for our brother unitedly from all over the world and here at the studio. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Thank you so much. 
You keep going, Jeff. Listen, don't let this get a hold of you. It's a passing thing. Let it go. I appreciate it. I love you, man. Love you too, my brother. Take care. All right, bye. All right, bye. We're going to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, yes, uh, Sean, uh, this is John in Tulsa again. I, I called you back. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks for you I've been on, but uh, I went and read the Preterist uh, website and went through all that with that. And, yeah. Uh, I just had a question. Uh, just maybe you could touch on it. Uh, in the book of Revelation, most scholars say that was actually written around 90 A.D. And, uh, of course, that would be past the 70 A.D., so that must be something wrong with that date. If I, that's I've heard true, sides of that, but some, it, the, the Federalists say it was earlier, like sixty-five A.D. Yeah, if the and, ninety, if the, if the ninety A.D. dating is true, then I would uh, personally step off my stance of preterism because you're right; right. it would not right. make any sense. Right. Uh, one other one book in Ezekiel. I went back and listened to Vernon McGee. He, he's a pretty good minister. And he went through all of Ezekiel, but I just listened to 38, 39, 40, which talks about the Battle of Armageddon and about Jerusalem and about the armies surrounded and about just looks sound like a nuclear war and all that. And then about the temple being rebuilt, the sacrifice being reinstituted, and then the Savior coming to the temple and uh, uh, showing himself and, uh, and coming through the East Gate and all that. Now, he kind of explained it that way, and he looks at it that way. However... The preterists say, and I went and looked at this, that the book of Ezekiel is not in chronological order, and that the dates of that particular one is actually before, so it's not in the right sequence, and it makes a whole different view of what went on. So I'm guessing that those things are something that's similar to those in the Hebrewisms and all that, probably uh, mean an earlier time in the history of Israel, not a later time, because of the fact that they're not in chronological order by date. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that explained. And, and just remember, John, here's my only point. Please, audience, listen. The point is, when does the Bible say Jesus would return? Uh, I, I'm just talking about his coming back. Yeah. But yes. I, in terms of the possibilities, I don't personally believe that we can take and assign what happens in Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation and, and make them fit in a reasonable way because of gaps and things. But if I'm wrong, and I very well could be wrong, uh, the, the point is I believe the Bible says he did return, that this is going to be a third coming or a fourth coming, in my opinion. Well, I agree with you 100%. That the, the, the Roman guy that was in charge of the battle... Uh, I, I think it's best Parsian or something like that. Yeah, that's basically. They came to him and and they came in his soldiers and said, "Man, I mean, there's thunder and lightning out here. There's hail coming out of heaven. I mean, God is killing these people and and helping us win this battle over Jerusalem." Yeah. And he said, "He said God's on our side, man. I, he says, I, if they don't can't see it, there's something wrong with them." I know. It's it's amazing how all the stuff that Jesus says in Matthew 24 was fulfilled at that time. But we'll keep searching. Let us know how you, how you go, uh, John. We love you. Thanks for watching. Yeah, thanks for the information in the show. I love it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, listen, Kathy in South Jordan, Isaiah says the world would rock to and fro on its axis and that men's heart would fail them. Has this happened? I believe it happened. Um, absolutely. I think it continues to happen. And I think that it was fulfilled absolutely at the time of 70 AD when all the things Jesus spoke of uh, occurred. Maria from California, in the Hebrews 9 reference, the word world is used twice. Once talking about the creation of the world, the other talking about the end of the age. In the same Greek word, is the same Greek word used for both circumstances, or is it aeon used once and cosmos used the other time? It's a really good question. And, Kath, and Maria, this is the answer. The first time it's used, it's aeon, okay? The second time it's, it's used, those lines are thought to have been added. That's why they're in italics in the King James and other versions. And that's why I didn't address it when I was reading that passage tonight. So uh, I'm sure it's Aeon, but it could be Cosmos. But because they believe the line was added later for clarity by, some, by somebody, um, I didn't include it in my explanation. I hope that helps, but the first one certainly is Aeon, okay? Uh, for those of you who aren't following this, hang, we're going to get to more understandable stuff, but we got to get this on tape, 
and we got to get this recorded because it does play an important role in um, in our Mormon Christian debate. Because, like I said, the LDS are still talking about the second coming. And if we can show from the Bible that that second coming was done, then we can at least show them biblically their application is off. Okay, um, older email. If you were going to align your present views with the his, with a historic organized Christian religion, where would you stand? Um, I would be part Anabaptist. Uh, who are known as the uh, the radical reformers. They're the ones who are being killed by Calvin's henchmen. I, I'm sorry, Calvin, not Calvin's henchmen, but uh, part Christian anarchy, Jacques Hulel and Leo Tolstoy. I certainly would follow Tolstoy's uh, influence in Christian anarchy, which does not endorse secular anarchy, Christians fighting against the government. It endorses following Christ as our archy. Christ alone, no authority, and Anabaptists were the same way. And it's part LDS, uh, not in doctrine, but certainly in uh, the way they uh, have organized the church uh, relative to wards and things like that. That's where my heart would lie, because I think they've done a great job with that. The opposite end, um, uh, I would, am far, far, farthest removed from five-point Calvinism. Uh, charismatic, health and wealth, name it and claim it, miracle workers, and five-point Calvinists, and oh yeah, uh, five-point Calvinists. Uh, so <laughs> uh, that's going to make some people happy. Uh, all right, uh, James Johnson was on our show back when we were in the former studio before being kicked out, and uh, I got an email from him, and it reads, my name is James Johnson, I was on your show last year proclaiming that God is female. I learned today, Thursday, September 8th, that God Almighty is actually male. I've been fooled by Satan into thinking that God is female. I apologize for misleading anyone into believing that God is female. In my journeys, I have found that our Father in heaven and Jesus have many faithful followers. It brings me much grief and embarrassment, and I, hold, I have told many people differently from the past three years. I ask you to somehow please, please forgive me. Sincerely, James Johnson. And James, I want you to know, forgiveness was granted when you said it. So uh, we all have different thoughts and we make mistakes. And James, that's a very nice uh, email that you sent, very humble. Um, got this astute email from a seeker named Matt. Want to say enjoy your program, YouTube, watch it. Fell out of the church back in 2008. Very active in the Mormon church, stopped my junior high and high school years. After a series of heartbreaks, I felt that perhaps God was... I was worshiping, uh, was not the God that I should be worshiping, or he was intentionally pushing me away. Eventually, I left the church. I was disillusioned by plastic, Ken and Barbie nature of the church and its adherence. I have since gone through various stages of self-discovery, including atheism, but have always used the words of Jesus as a measure, despite the feud, as I refer to it, I was having with God. I was trying not to believe in. My anger has been subdued, as age has taught me much, being drawn to the nature of God and having an interest in religion. I've been watching program on the Mormons to educate myself. While I no longer believe that I would call the magical aspects of the Bible, I no longer believe in what I call the magical aspects of the Bible. He goes on and he goes on to say that uh, he wants to receive Christ. And he says, uh, he points something out. He quotes the Tao Te Ching. He says, when goodness is lost, there is morality. And he says that's how the LDS church is. When goodness is lost, there's morality. And he's really quite astute for a young man. Appreciate his thoughts. Uh, Barboa from the Czech Republic wanted to thank the show. God, through him, just saved my friend before brainwashing religion and getting involved in the occult of Mormonism. So that's all the way from the Czech Republic. We love things like that. Uh, thank you, Barbara, for writing us and taking the time. Uh, had a rather abrupt and unexpected uh, conversation with a man in public today. He said uh, that he was a Christian and that he had some advice for me. As I walked into the store the other day, I was addressed by another Christian when he said something to me and I stopped and tried to engage him and then he would not speak. He walked out to his car and would not speak. 
people since we've been involved in ministry here in Utah often ask me, you know, have you had death threats from the LDS and are they mean to you? And sure, there's, there's some wackos in the LDS and they do things that are crazy. Uh, some of them have been very rude, but I have never, ever been treated worse in uh, uh, the public opinion in public forums and on the streets of Salt Lake by individuals and I have been treated by Christians, never. I have seen the most heinous treatment from people uh, who think that I have fallen from grace and think they have the right to treat me accordingly. Uh, If I didn't know the Lord the way I know him, uh, I would not be a Christian. I would walk, if I was weak in my faith, I would say shine it to whatever this is about because these people are ruthless and I don't get it. All I can say is, uh, all I can do is respond in kindness to the best of my ability. But uh, you know, you think the Mormons are tough. I like them by comparison. Uh, I know there's bad neighbors who are in the Mormon church and I know that their doctrine's messed up and there's a lot of arrogance, but gosh, the meanness that pours out of some of the Christians I have met who used to be friends, uh, it's, it's unconscionable. So think on that, you guys. I don't know what you think it's about. You know, you, you wanna castigate me in public because of doctrinal differences. And um, uh, I don't know, I just don't, I, that's why I'm so opposed to doctrine separating people up. Of late, li- literally the last 10 days, I've been uh, approached by three different people telling me they have been ritualistically abused in the LDS church as children. Usually, I'm really high, highly suspect of this stuff because I'm, a, I'm a cynical by nature. So I think, oh, you know, okay. And you know, we get these reports and I followed through on them. Um, Ritualistic abuse usually involves somebody who's a minor, a children, who with the power of a priesthood, blood oaths, animals being sacrificed, prayers being said, there's always sexual molestation or sexual abuse of females and sometimes males in it. And if you've been ritually, uh, ritualistically abused in the state of Utah, and it entails some of these clandestine things, and you can prove it, write us, and I'll follow up with you. I'll have you on the show. But on every case, and we've been doing this a while, every single case where people say they can prove it, it always falls apart, every time. I'm not saying you're not telling the truth, but I'm just saying, you know, there's a lot of claims, but so don't think I'm ignoring you if, if I'm not taking it real seriously, but you gotta prove it. Uh, After our series on when does the Bible say Jesus is going to return, what's next? A four-part series on God's plan of salvation. It's going to be in response to Arminianism, Calvinism, Mormonism, and Universalism. And it's going to be what I believe through the Bible shows what God's plan has been all along. Question, I've heard you say on several occasions that you believe that there are people who may be saved who die without knowing Jesus in this life. Is this really true? Yes, it is true. They will, of course, uh, be saved because of Jesus and only because of Jesus and only through Jesus and his shed blood. But I believe it's possible not to know his name and or his identity, aka, uh, or I mean, I.E. or E.G., a Muslim who is seeking the true and living God through nature and what's on his heart and has been beguiled by Islam and is out there in the desert seeking him and dies and he's been faithful to what he knows. I believe he'll be saved by the blood of Christ and he'll come to know who Jesus is. If that's so far afield from you, then let it be far afield. We differ on that. I believe God is just and merciful and because someone doesn't hear the name or know the ontology of Christ in this life does not doom them to hell forever and ever and ever. I don't believe that. And if you do, that's okay. I I accept you as a brother or sister, but I'm gonna differ with you on it. I think God has other things in store. Speaking of possible salvations and impossible salvations, it is kind of funny, isn't it, when we kind of take these things seriously into our own hands? Well, do you think that they were really saved? You know, hmm, well, I'm not sure. Were they baptized? We start, you know, breaking this stuff down and thinking that we are gonna be the ones to be able to judge who is saved, who has not been saved. How about we just try to follow up with the commandments that are mentioned in the New Testament? And there's only two. You know, the word says commandments, but there's only two. And we we are obedient to those two commandments. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love God and neighbor as ourself. Those are the two commandments for Christians. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, 23. 
That is what's on us. Believe and love. How about we just step back and we just try to do that rather than try to figure out who's saved, who isn't, what doctrine is actually perfect and what is not. All right, uh, we have anything else? There's no calls. Um, one last thing, we'll end it up with this. Heard a story today. Apparently, there's a woman who has come to know the Lord who's been LDS. She uh, still LDS and she's going through a divorce. Uh, she's a babe in Christ. She lives in Northern Utah. And I got this story firsthand from someone who has helped this woman come through to know Christ, uh, who is also former LDS. And this woman's trying to hold it together with three or four kids. I can't remember, they're, they're teenagers. One was just called on an LDS mission. The woman took a video of her son, I guess this is a cultural thing they do here, and videoed him opening his mission call. And she did the, the dumb thing by posting it on Disgracebook. And some very outspoken Christians from her church, uh, they used that time to publicly chide, ridicule her. It was sheer condemnation for supporting her son and him going out to preach a false gospel. Does God, does Jesus need us to protect him? Do we have to do this? Uh, do we need to attack people who are doing their best to juggle their children who they love and the lives that have been heaped upon them and, the, and you know, kids going on missions and people marrying Mormons and stuff? Do we have to do this? Can we not just be Christ to them, show more love, show more faith and try? I am the most guilty in the state of Utah for being the most brash and attacking against Mormons on the air. And, and I repent, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And, but it was only through maturity in the word and, and, and being humbled by life that I saw that the venom will reach a certain people, but those people then thrive on venom. And uh, so I, I, it breaks my heart. Uh, is God honored when we assassinate others in his name? How would you have handled this situation if you were on Facebook and you saw a woman who's new to Christ, who is just trying to be supportive? Would you get on there and do that? It's this kind of thing that, you know, the disgrace book crowd, you're a disgrace. You make me sick. And I'm sorry, but that's true. And uh, I'm sorry for the animus, but it, I just can't believe it. We just keep doing it to each other. Let's wrap it up. Next week, we're gonna talk about judgment in the end times. We're gonna wrap it up the following week and get through uh, this. And then we're gonna hit on uh, God's plan of salvation. After that, we're gonna hit on what it means to be a Christian and what the Bible says. Talk about once saved, always saved. Talking about works, talking about grace, all that stuff. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride. Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On show, everybody. the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising the dawn's awaiting till the 